Uh, we are glad you guys are here this morning or tuning in. I know there are some faces that I, I don't know. So my name is Matthew, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, glad you guys are here. I'm not going to look at you awkwardly if I've never met you before because I don't want to make you feel awkward until I can shake your hand or fist bump you or elbow, whatever we can do. Um, but we're glad that you're here, glad that you're tuning in this morning. Uh, we wrapped up our series in First John last week, and so we're going to take a few weeks of just kind of bouncing around and, you know, just kind of talking through some things that, that God lays on our hearts. Um, and a couple of weeks ago in a, a men's Bible study I'm a part of on Wednesday mornings, this particular passage came up, and as we were discussing it, I was like, man, we, this, is, this would be great for us right now. On the hills of 1 John, which at times could be very heavy, um, this is, it's not that this is not heavy and substantial, but it's just, man, it's a little bit of a breather and a little bit of a breath, and so uh, glad to be in this particular place today. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're not going to do a whole series in Second Peter, but to give you a little bit of information, uh, what's going on, this is probably, uh, man, they are cutting the grass hard out there today. Good for them. Bad for my allergies, but good for them. Uh, Flonase is great right now. But uh, it's probably 64 to 68 AD right now when this particular book is being written. It's towards the end of Nero's reign, but more importantly, it's towards the end of Peter's life. Peter is going to be martyred uh, probably at any point now. After he writes this, he's in prison, most likely in Rome. Uh, we know that Nero died in 68 AD by his own hand. He killed himself. Uh, and some, at some point before that, he put a ton of Christians to death. Um, and one of those was Peter. Peter knew that it was coming. Later, if we kept reading in this particular passage today, uh, we would see him say that he knew. In verse 14, it says, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus made clear to me, uh, he knows that like it's coming. He's well aware of it. And so this particular book... Uh, he's writing most likely to like the, the churches in Asia Minor, which would be Turkey, Greece, and a few of those other notable cities and countries. Uh, he's writing it to them kind of as like a, a fatherly pastoral figure just to give them some last-minute uh, ideas and some last-minute notions. Just, you know, like if you think about it, if you were at the end of your life, what would you tell your kids? And that's kind of where he is right now. Uh, we know that Peter did have a wife, and he most likely had, you know, real physical children, but at the same time, he had a ton of spiritual children, uh, Jews and Gentiles alike, and at this point, he's just like, man, my days are numbered, they're limited, I'm good with that, I know that it's about to be awesome, but either way, before I go, I want to tell you a couple of things. And so this is what he's doing today in the rest of this letter as well. Uh, today is more, this particular passage we're going to look at is more instruction um, versus warnings, which he'll do later. Um, but we're going to start in verse 3, read through 11, and then we're going to go back and talk about these just a little bit. So let me, uh, let me pray one more time before we read God's Word, and then we're going to see what God has for us today. Thank you guys again for being here. God, we love you. Thank you for your Word. Thank you that it's trustworthy because it comes from you. Thank you that it's right and just to convict us of sin, but more importantly, God, today to point us towards what it looks like to live for you. God, thank you for the things that are, are so poignantly pointed out that you gave to us. God, I pray that we're grateful, um, but God, I also pray that we see and hear the responsibility that's placed on us in this passage. Uh, God, you would remind us of it frequently, um, and God, we could do it in the name of Jesus uh, well. Um, God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 3. Uh, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, 
and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, like for me, I think I've mentioned this, there are days when, uh, when I read, read the Bible and some days what I'm craving is I'm craving like the fatherly instruction of just being told what to do. Like I'm at that place in my spiritual journey to where I don't mind it anymore. Like I don't mind God actually saying, hey, do this, don't do that. I know that probably in the early days, maybe when we were still rebellious at heart, that bothered us a little bit to be told what to do. But at this stage in the game, like uh, I've talked about it, uh, by comparison to the majority of origins, I'm an old man, I'm 41. Now compared to some of you, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not there yet. But either way, compared to most, like 41's old, I've been doing my best to follow Jesus since I was about six, didn't know what that meant. But either way, for about the past 20 some odd years, I've been as diligent as I can possibly be. In hindsight, of course, there's things I wish I could do differently, but I've done my best to follow after Jesus. But, but at this stage in the game now, like, I, I don't mind letting go of the mental struggle and even the emotional attachment to having to understand everything. And sometimes it's just good for me just to hear, do this, don't do that. Like it's almost going back to being like a child to where I feel like our children need those guidelines. Like don't play in the street. They don't need to know why they don't need to play in the street. They just need to know. Don't play in the street. Or maybe eat your vegetables. We don't have to tell them why they need to eat their vegetables, but just, just do it. Peas, carrots, eat them, even though they won't. But either way, like I value just this idea of being told what to do. This particular passage kind of hits me like that. But before we get to that, I want to go to how he sets this up. Uh, in verses uh, 3 through 4, he tells us that God has given us a couple of things. And so just to reread this, he says, His divine power has granted to us or graced to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us. The first thing that we need to see that we have been given in this particular passage, believe it or not, is the word all. And it says, all things needed to live a godly life. Believe it or not, like at the moment of salvation... We have been fully equipped by this, man, this spiritual transaction that occurs by grace through faith. We have been given everything that we need then and there to live a godly life. Like it's been imparted to us, imbued to us, given to us, placed in us, supernatural exchange in us so that we can have this life. Now, are there things that we don't know? Absolutely. Are there things we don't understand? Absolutely. But the spirit that has been placed in us, the promises that we'll talk about in a minute, they have been given to us then and there to live a godly life, right there. And sometimes I think that we believe that the learning curve is very steep, but what we have to understand is that this is not an exam that we study for. This is not a final that we have to know everything on so that we can answer correctly, so that we can do it well. No, this is supernatural. And God gives us these things so that we may live eternally with him. And we talked about it last week, that eternal life does not start when we're placed in heaven. No, it starts the moment that our life is forfeit in favor of the life of Christ. 
We see our sin. We say, I don't want that anymore. Jesus, I want you more. Take me, make me, do whatever you want with me, but, but I just want you now. And at that moment, we are given this gift. to get. We have been given everything we need to live a godly life. And that seems crazy. It seems odd. We don't accept it. We don't take full advantage of it, but we need to know it's true. We've been given everything that we need. Huge gift. Whoops. Thank goodness for bookmarks. So we've been given everything. He continues on and he says, uh, I'm going to reread that just again because I think we need to hear it. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness or a life in God through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted or graced to us, given us something else as a result of grace, he is, to which uh, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Not only has he given us all of the access that we need, but he's also given us all of the tools which we see in the form of promises. So the, so the first part of saying that we've been given everything that we need to live a godly life, think about that as the door has been opened, we have been ushered through, and now in that is the godly life that we've been promised. We are living in that, we are walking in that, we've been given all access. But through the promises that he talks about in the second part, he says, not only have you been given access, but now you've been given the tools. You've been given the things that you need to do it, one of which, he says, to be partakers of the divine nature. This is just Paul's language to a kind of appeal to his Hellenistic culture that he's talking to. That's, that's basically talking about the Holy Spirit. We have been partakers or sharers in the divine nature. That means the Spirit of God now lives in us, rests in us, resides in us, seals us. So we've been given access, but we've also been given the tools. One of those tools is the, the Holy Spirit that comes and lives in us. We talked about that over the past couple of weeks, just this idea that, that through Him we can know God, we can be known by God, we can be guided by God, we can be convicted by God, we can be pointed away from sin, we can be pointed towards goodness, we can do all those things. We've been given access, we've been given the tools. And those are two amazing gifts. Because what that tells me is it tells me that I don't have to earn it, I don't have to create it. I don't have to, to go out and even understand all of it. But the fact is, God wants me so much, he's going to give me access, and he's going to give me tools. And then here's, here's the reason that I want to point both of those things out. Because in verse 5, here's the big deal. It says, for this very reason, or for these very reasons, before we continue on in the rest of these, understand that, that Peter is taking this opportunity to point out the things that God's given us so that he can give us a, a framework for what he's about to tell us for this very reason. Dallas Willard is, uh, man, one of my uh, favorite guys. Just a, He's a, a big thinker. I love to read him. He passed away several years ago, but he was more on the side of philosophy, but he was also a Christ follower. And so a lot of his stuff, it's one of those books or these types of books that you read one page five times to try to figure out what that sometimes one paragraph page meant. But either way, great thinker. And one of uh, his quotes that he shared that just... Man, it echoes so deeply with me as he says that grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Man, very often, I know that there's a battle in us with understanding that grace can truly be free, but then there's still work for me to do. Like, I know that there's a, there's a battle there there's, because it, they seem at odds. Because on one side, we believe, like, like in the American value system and even the, the human value system in which everything that we have, we work for because we have to earn it. Your paycheck, you have to work for your paycheck. Your home, you have to work for your home. 
like even family to a degree, you have to work for your family. Like those are natural human ideas, and, and those things are true. Like I'm, I'm not going to earn a paycheck unless I, I work for it. But grace, on the other hand, grace can't be earned. Grace is not about being earned. Like what God gives us, there's no way that we could earn it because understand the debt that has been racked up uh, just as a result of just even one sin on my behalf, there's no way that I could wipe that away. No matter all the good that I could do, there's nothing that I could do to, to, to get rid of that one mark on my ledger because all of my best efforts apart from God, none of them could possibly be good enough to erase even one blot when we compare it to the holiness of God. And so God said, there's no way that they're going to earn this, so I'm going to grace it to them, grant it to them, charismai it to them, and so we don't earn it. But the tension comes when uh, we start to understand and we start to learn the longer that we follow Jesus that even though we don't have to earn grace, there's still effort that must be made. And we've been told a lot, like, you don't have to earn this salvation. Okay, then why do I have to do anything? Well, this, I think this is what Peter's going to try to get across Today He talks about the things that we've been given. We've been granted access, uh, we've been given the tools, and then in verse 5, is he's, he's going to give us this list. And he says, for this very reason, because of what you've been given, do this. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And we're going to pause right there. A couple phrases I want to point out before we go any further. Anytime you hear someone say, make every effort, that is the nice way of saying, Work your booty off. Like very often, like we've talked about, uh, like with our, even with kids or even if we send out publications or things like that, if we're talking, trying to talk as kindly as possible to, to covenant members within this faith family or to organizations that we have responsibility with, like if we ever say, make every effort, understand what we're really saying is do everything possible other than die to make this happen. That's exactly what Peter's language was here. Make every effort. But what he's basically saying is, hey, work as hard as you possibly can. Work your tail off. Work it, girl. Just, I mean, I don't, that's probably not what Peter was saying, and that probably shouldn't even pop out, and maybe we'll erase that somehow when we go to release this digitally, but this is live, so we can't. But either way, like, work hard for this. Like, don't just read it and say, mm, do this if it's convenient or do this if it makes sense. No, he's like, no, if there is anything possible uh, that would keep you from doing this, get rid of it. Make sure that you understand that what I'm about to say is of huge, vital, eternal importance. Kick down doors, tear down walls, do whatever you have to do in light of what we have just heard and do this. And I know that seems rather a, a passionate plea, but I believe that that's at the heart of what Peter's trying to say because understand, the two things that he's listed, the two gifts that he's talking about, access and then tools, those are massive, massive gifts. The weight of this passage rests at the top. Like it's just this, this huge weighty idea that God has given us everything that we possibly need to live this victorious life in his name for his glory in this world that needs to hear about him daily, repeatedly, and have opportunities to respond to him. He says, look, make every single possible conceivable effort to do these things. For this reason, make every effort. And then he says to supplement your faith. Like, I, I hear this idea of supplement, and I'm immediately uh, kind of 
go to that other world that I've lived in for so long of like the gym world. Like I've, I've been, I've worked in gyms for 20 plus years, um, a long time, and been working out hard. And I just remember, always remember that one guy in every gym that will show up to a workout and he's like, man, you got to try this new supplement. I'm like, what is it? He's like, I have no idea, but it's in this bottle. It looks like it was printed in someone's garage. And I'm like, what's it supposed to do? And he's like, everything. More energy, more muscle, less fat, more poundage, everything. Like, everything. How's it working? I don't know. My pee's real green. But just those ideas of, of supplements, you know. And, and you've seen some crazy ones come across. I've always said one of the best jobs on the planet would be naming supplements because they have the greatest names ever, like tenacity. That's pretty tame. Crazy, ludicrous, angry elf, you know, things like that. Just the best names on the planet. Like, I would love to name supplements, but either way, like, in the, in the gym world, there's always this idea, like, if, if you want to grow, if you want to get better, then there, there are some supplements out there, some things that you can take to help in addition to normal food, normal work, normal sleep, all of these things. There's always a way to take it to the next level. You know, if you can't eat enough, that's okay. There's a, there's a powder for that. You can shake it up. You can drink it. Get some nice, pure protein. And by the way, whey protein isolate's the way to go. I love this stuff. But either way, there, there's always a supplement out there, something that you can add to something that's already good, which is your food and your body, to just help you do it a little bit better. Now, I'm not saying go out and take all the supplements in the world. I'm not. But that's what I think about when I hear supplement your faith. He's saying, look, you've already been given these things. You've been given access. You've been given tools. Uh, make every effort to do the things that I'm about to do, and here's what I'm telling you to do. Take that faith that you've been given, that's been trusted to you, so that you can know God, be used by God, and do everything you can to add to it. Not to add to it for salvation, but to add to it in response. Because I think here's our, our tendency when we're given something for free. We don't really value it. Like we don't, we don't really value free. Even though we desire free, I think sometimes unless it costs us something, we don't really value it. Like even when you, even like if you go to, to classes and everything about uh, how, to, how to provide services for people, you know, they, they tell you the first thing, make them pay something because if they don't pay something, they're not going to value it. If they don't have any skin in the game, they're not going to value it. But see, the problem is, like grace, to be honest, it is utterly free. Like there's no way that I can earn it. But here's the thing. There should be a response in me, a response in the we, a response in the us, that we see the goodness of grace and it motivates us to move. Because we've got two options of things that we can do with grace. Number one, we can sit on it. Like we can just sit on it. And sitting on grace, you know what that looks like? That looks like uh, coming to church, sitting down, finding a chair, making it your own, being there. Now, I'm not saying showing up is wrong. Like, I think that's probably one of the spiritual disciplines that we don't talk about, talk about enough is just, man, showing up. Showing up is huge. Show up. But understand that, that we show up so that we can grow together, so that we can learn together, so that we can go and do something with it. Like, if we just sit on grace, man, we haven't understood grace. Like, if we're just coming in and willing just to warm a chair, like, I'm grateful that you're here, but man, that's, that's 5% of the game, if that. Like, you'll meet people that, and, and this is probably one of the saddest things for me, that someone that's been a spiritual infant for 50 years, 
because they've accepted that grace is free and it doesn't cost them anything and they're willing to come Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday evening, whatever. But they haven't grown beyond the level of an infant in their faith. They haven't shared their faith. They haven't allowed their faith to cost them anything. They've never led anyone to Jesus. And I'm not saying that that's the pinnacle, but hey, it is the responsibility that's placed on us in Scripture that every single one of us are servers and purveyors of the gospel, like everyone. Not just ministers, not just deacons, not just elders. No, every single one, every one that's been redeemed by Jesus, we all take the gospel. So imagine if we have taken this idea that we've been given access to the godly life that God desires us to live, and we've been given the tools to live out this godly life that we've been called to live, and we're just like, hey, that's great. I'm going to do nothing with it. We're bought with a great price, a very high price. It doesn't entitle us to sit. So it says, make every effort to supplement your faith. I love this passage because what it does for me, too, is it, 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 it helps me understand better this idea of God's part, my part. Like, God redeems me. I didn't redeem myself. God saved me. I didn't save myself. Not capable. But here's the thing. God says, I am redeeming you. I am saving you. I am transporting you from darkness into light, from lost into found, uh, from lack of an, an eternal relationship with me to an eternal relationship with me. I'm doing all of that so that you may dot, dot, dot. God's part, our part. While it's not necessary for my salvation, it should be a result of my salvation. And so this is what he lists. He says, for this very reason, these things that I've just talked about, make every effort, bust your behind to supplement your faith. And the first thing he says is with virtue. Now, granted, that's not a word that we, we talk about very often, but with virtue. But what this word actually translates to mean is this idea of, hold on, moral excellence. He says, you've been granted faith, okay, free gift. You didn't earn it. You've been granted salvation. You've been granted access. You've been granted tools. In light of that, the first thing that you need to do, your part, Live a life that's marked by moral excellence. And I know we don't like to hear that. We do want our cake and we want to eat it too. Like we, we don't want to have to think that my life should look different, my moral choices should look different as a result of Jesus. But here's the bottom line, they should. And I'm not cracking the whip on anybody. I'm talking to myself too, but my choices should be different. It starts with what I see, what I listen to, what I say, what I entertain, what I allow to get in here, because eventually it's going to come out. Moral excellence. Man, for those of you that are single, um, this is one of the things that's not talked about enough. I even heard somebody talk about this a little while back. Now, granted, I'm married. And I get to enjoy all the rights and the privileges of marriage, and it's good, and there, there are probably kids that are listening, so I'm not going to talk about it. But hey, one of the things in culture right now that's being washed away is, is sexual purity. Well, here's the deal. And God designed marriage to do certain things. He designed it to be a unique relationship, different from everything else, to glorify him at every single turn. And one of those ways that it glorifies them is by the way that we are keeping the things in marriage that need to be in marriage and only there. And that includes sex. That includes things pertaining to sex. That includes what we think about, what we do, how we practice our life. Believe it or not, Scripture is pretty clear about alcohol, too. It doesn't say that you can't have it, but it says that when you have it, you need to do it responsibly. It says, do not be drunk, several times. We, we, can't, we can't get around that. Like, there's no way that we can get around that. It says, do not be drunk. Like, how do we quantify that? How drunk am I? No, 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 we don't, we don't start there. Just like It just says, do not be drunk. 
There's other areas, like even what we do with our brain. It says, uh, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I've told you that if you look at a woman or a man lustfully, you've already done it. So it even talks about what we think about. Moral excellence. In light of this, do this. He said the first thing that you do, you supplement your faith with virtue or moral excellence. Now, I realize that's a hard one. It is, because there's a lot of things that we can do that people will never, ever see. doesn't matter. My private life is not really my private life. It's just not. And I need to have people in my life that I trust enough that I discuss my private life with. I need to be able to discuss it with my wife, and I do. I need to be able to discuss it with other men who are going to hold me accountable, and thank the Lord I do. Um, and, and I'm grateful to God that I have men that if I discuss something with them that I shouldn't be doing, they're going to pop me. Maybe physically. And it's okay. It's our agreement. It's, all, it's between us. Moral excellence. It's a big deal. The second thing that he says is supplement your faith. Do everything possible to supplement your faith with virtue and with virtue uh, and virtue with knowledge. Believe it or not, we pursue God with our minds. We go after him with what we know. And here, like, we've, we have this, this, this Bible, this thing that we can hold, that we can hide in our hearts, but also that we can allow to get into our minds. And that means that we do need to be a bit academic about it. We need, do need to be a bit diligent about it. We do need to be a bit religious about it, if we want to use those words. Not religion that leads to death, but religion that points us towards God. That's okay. That's okay. We've been promoting this five-day reading plan. If you struggle with how to read the Bible, man, I'll, I'll be glad to give it to you. You can pick up where we are right now. And you miss Leviticus. Oh, well. If you want to do that, I'd love to give you one of those. It's just a great way. You read five to seven chapters a day, five days a week, and at the end of the year, you've read the entire Bible. We need to pursue God with our mind, what we know, how we think. I mean, it would be like, oh my gosh, like it would be like me being married to my wife and not attempting to get to know her. That would be terrible. It would be horrible. Like our marriage would fail instantly, but we think, hey, grace free. I'm already there. Keys to the castle. I'm ready to roll. But no. He says, make every effort. God's done his part, now you do yours. One of those things is you pursue him with your mind. You try to get to know him. Learn his language. Learn the way that he deals with you. Like we even talked about last week, if, we, if we're attempting to pray in God's will, how are we going to get to know God's will unless we get to know God? We have to. Supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge. With knowledge, verse 6, self-control. Self-control. Goes back to the moral excellence thing. The self-control idea is, hey, God's done his part. You do your part. It means that you need to build fences. You need to build walls. You need to build a little bit of strength. Because there are going to be things that are going to be hard for you to resist and hard for things, things that are hard for you to do. You have to learn how to control yourself. We can no longer say the devil made me do it because he didn't. We just can't. That's not an out for us anymore, because if we go down and we read the rest of this, which we will in just a minute, we've been told that we've been released from that bonds. We're no longer controlled by those things. No, God's granted us access. He's given us the tools. In light of these things, hey, make every effort. Supplement your faith. Do your part. Self-control. We can no longer claim that anybody else made us do it. We choose sin or we don't. We choose pursuit of God or we don't. Bottom line, end of the day. Now, there's temptations that will come. Sometimes we don't have control over that, but we have utter control over what we do with it. God's granted us that power. He's granted us victory over sin already, eternally, but also circumstantially. We have to choose to live in that. Do your part, my part. And self-control with steadfastness. 
probably my favorite word that pops up in Hebrew in the Old Testament is steadfastness, because it's not a word that we use that often. But steadfastness is this. You set a course, no matter what you do, you don't change your course. Like, think about it in nautical terms. Like, hey, I'm going to go at 258 degrees until I hit the target. I'm going to keep going there no matter what. No matter what gales, no matter what waves, no matter what winds, no matter what islands, it doesn't matter. That's the direction that I'm going. It's not going to change. That's steadfastness. So it, it, it doesn't matter what, what moral failures you encounter. doesn't matter. You pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, and you go. External forces doesn't matter. We've chosen a course. We stay on the course. Difficulties in life, man, it doesn't matter. Now, I know this sounds rather hard, and it sounds, you know, it just sounds rather uncaring. God does care, and God does give grace. He's not going to remove that, but at the same time, we choose. We set the course already predetermined by God. It's the cross of Jesus, and we keep heading in that direction. And guess what? When we get knocked off course, which will happen, not liberty or license, but it's just an understanding. When we get knocked back on course, we find our bearings, and we continue on steadfastness. Because there are going to be things that are. They are going to knock us off course. There are going to be things that are just, man, they're going to trip us up. They're going to send us backwards. They're going to, whatever. But after we come to our senses, after we come to ourselves like the prodigal son, it's like, oh, my dad, my dad takes care of even his lowest servant. I'll go back there. When we find ourselves in the pit and in the pigsty and we come to ourselves, we're like, oh, God, this is what I did. I'm sorry. Sometimes steadfastness is more about, man, repentance than it is about anything else. Like we look at David, he's called a man after God's own heart. He would have been called steadfast. David screwed up big, big. But he was still steadfast. He was still resolute. Make every effort. Do your part. Self-control, steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. Here's the one that seems lofty and out of reach. Lofty and out of reach. Doing your part sometimes is just imitating the very heart of God. Godliness, godlikeness. Doing our best to be like him. Doing our best to love like him. Doing our best to, to serve like him. And we've gotten to see all of that played out in the man, the life of Jesus. We've seen all of that. He says, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. One of the greatest reasons that Jesus came was to be that benchmark, that standard, which was God on display. Man, if we want to be like God, we need to imitate Jesus. And for us to imitate Jesus, we need to get to know his life, what it looked like, what it sounded like, what it smelled like. Maybe not what it smelled like, but either way, what it was like. And do that. Do your part. Imitate him. I think very often that's more of a heart issue than it is a parts issue, which means it's how we feel about things, how we process things, how we dwell on things versus how we do things, because if it's here, it's going to come out in how we practice. Do your part. Godliness. And then here's an interesting thing. Um, in a lot of translations, if we were being honest, the next two would be the same word. It says, and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Most likely, a lot of those things would just say, and love with love. Because brotherly affection would be philos or brotherly love. And then this other love that we see right here is more agape kind of an idea. So in the order that he puts them in, after godliness, he says, and with godliness, brotherly affection. In other words, love one another. First John goes, talks about it over and over and over. Jesus talked about it over and over and over. He said, people will know you by the way that you love one another. Do that. And he says, not just love one another, but love them as I has loved you. Oh, that gets kind of hard. Yes, it does. He says, do your part. Have brotherly affection. Have philos for one another. Love each other like brothers and sisters. Love them well. Love them sacrificially. 
love each other until you can't. And by the way, that's not going to happen. There is no expiration on this. Love well, take care of one another's needs, physically, spiritually, emotionally. Meet each other where they are. We've talked about this extensively. Go back and listen to the whole series in 1 John. It was only about 14 weeks. You can do it today. Love one another. And he says, with brotherly affection or with philos, supplement that even additionally with agape. And then agape, man, it, it takes it to a whole other level. Because that one is not just love one another with no limits, but love everybody with no limits. With no questions, with no stipulations, with no conditions. Remember when Jesus was asked, you know, what's the most important commandment? He said, um, hear, O Israel. Love the Lord your God with everything you got from the bottom of your foot to the top of your head, everything in between, and then love your neighbors yourself. Man, this is what he's talking about. He said, my part, I've already done that, and I'm continuing to do that, and I will keep doing that. Your part, do everything that you possibly can to supplement that faith that's been granted to you as a result of grace. And now, here's the last part. Man, love everybody, no questions. Love everybody, no questions. And that's hard because we love to put conditions on love like I do. Like I do. Like I will love you as much as I can if you do this. But he said, no, 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 take away the if and just I will love you as much as I can, period. And by the way, that ability that for us to love, it's been expounded on exponentially, to use redundant language, by God, by the very spirit of God, the author, the maker of love. It's been given to us, that, that ability. That's one of those tools, one of those promises. And then he qualifies all these things, that list. Supplement your faith with virtue or moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and then love for all people or that agape. He says this, continuing on in verse 8. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a negative, right? He's stating this in a, in, a, in a negative term. He's like, if you do these, they will keep you from being unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ineffective and unfruitful. Let's put it in the positive. Okay, the positive would be, if we're doing these, we can be effective and we can be fruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Same statement. If we're, and, and this is what I love about this passage. Hey, do these things. Now, granted, not an easy list. Okay, some days I'm going to do one well, but I'm going to do six terrible. But either way, there's a list right there. Do these things as a result of the access and the tools that you've been given. And hey, if you're doing those, you will be effective and you will be fruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. Do this, this will happen. This is not metaphor. This is not a, a simile. This is not, no, it's none of these things. This is literal. You do this, this will happen. Man, I love that. I need that. I crave that. God, I want to know. You tell me what to do and what's going to happen as a result, and I'm going to go after that. Peter's like, look, if you, if you understand the gifts that you've been given, the access and the tools that you've been given, you see those as so grateful, and then after that, if you see how good they are, how weighty they are, how amazing they are, make every effort to supplement your faith with these things, you will be effective and you'll be fruitful. This is not a name it, claim it kind of an idea. No, no, no. This is you have been given something. Now respond to it. Work your booty off. And God will do with it what he desired in the first place. He's going to redeem you so that others may know. He's going to redeem you so that you can love well. He's going to redeem you so that this mission that he created beforehand, he's going to place you in and you're going to thrive and you're going to excel there. But not for your glory. Not for my glory. Not for origin's glory, but for his. Man, 
that's good. I mean, that is, that is, that is like heaven clap, bang, good. That just, for me, maybe it isn't for you, but for me, it gives me those glory bumps on the back of my neck. He says, therefore, verse 10, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, if these things are done, you will be fruitful. Uh, if these things are done, you will not forget grace that has been poured out on you richly. And third, he says, you can be sure of the eternity that lies ahead of you. You can be sure of the eternity that lies ahead of you, that starts at the moment, by grace through faith, that you turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. But yes, it is going to culminate in perfection. It will. Because Jesus, he's promised us. This is the other promise that we can hang on to. He is coming back, and everything that is wrong, he is going to fix. And we are going to live in perpetual grace and goodness and servanthood to him forever. And that should excite me, because it excites me, and it just should. He says, you keep doing these things, you can be sure that's what awaits you. Not because you've earned it, but because you've understood it. And now you're living in it. God's part, my part. Man, Paul, when he's writing the book of Philippians in chapter 2, verse 12, uh, throw that up for me if you would. I love how he phrases this and, and how it's translated in the New Living Translations. It says, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation obeying God with deep reverence and fear. We generally say that, work your, work your salvation out with fear and trembling. Man, I love what it just says here. In light of what God has done, work hard. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Work hard to show the results of your salvation with deep reverence and fear towards God. Understand his place, understand our place, understand what he's done and live a life that responds to those things. And I truly believe this. If we're going after that, moral excellence will happen. I truly believe that knowledge of him will happen. I truly believe that self-control will happen, that steadfastness will be a result, that godliness will be seen, that brotherly affection will be perceived and felt, and that agape, love for all people, will be on full display. I believe it. Access tools, huge gifts. Respond to it well. I need to respond to it well. God, we're thankful for your word today. We thank you, God, that you just, through your word, you lay it out plainly and simply to us that uh, as a result of you and what you've done, our life should look different. It shouldn't just be different by destination, but God, it should be different based on the now, like where we are now. What does our life do? What does it look like? What does it show to people? God, I pray that you would birth in us a work ethic that mirrors the work ethic of Jesus. Whether it's, just our, whether it's our job, we work at it for you. Whether it's our home, we work at it for you. Whether it's our relationship leading to marriage, we work at it to you. Whether it's our marriage, we work at it revealing you. But God, we respond to the goodness that you've already displayed and you build in us a work ethic. Thank you, God, that you just didn't redeem us just to sit on grace. But, Father, I pray that your spirit would remind us frequently that this grace, as free as it was, there's huge responsibility attached. God, there's a kingdom at work. There's a mission at stake. 
grow in us the desire to work for it. We love you. We thank you. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Matthew. And I know I'm challenged a lot this week um, to, to supplement my faith in, in many different ways. And I hope you guys were challenged as well to do that. Um, one way we can continue to prepare ourselves, because we're in this fight together, it's, we're not walking in our faith as individuals, but as, as a church corporately. And so one way to, 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 prepare, to prepare our hearts and minds continually this week to do that is to read some scripture together. And so if you guys would like to stand up with us, um, I don't know if it's going to be on the screen behind us or if you guys want to grab your, your phones or uh, your, your Bibles. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 19, and we're going to be in uh, verses 7 through 11. And this is something that we can corporately read together. I'll go slow so we can all read, and if I get ahead, just throw fruit at me or something. But um, let's go ahead and read this, and I'll, I'll end it with an amen, and then we'll be deployed out into our weeks for Christ. King David says, the Lord, or the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Amen. Church, you guys have a good week.